Hello everyone, it's January 7th, 2020. We're talking about Chandrayaan 3 today. It's a new year, so why not a new Chandrayaan? Then we're talking to Dr. Martin Elvis about this whole asteroid mining thing. How many of them are really worth mining if you're looking to make a fortune? Let's find out. And liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 242 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. How was your uh, your New Year's? It was all right. I didn't really do anything since I don't celebrate New Year's. Um, I oh, okay. I think I think the real holiday was just a uh, you know I just had like a week off from having to do a podcast, which you know which I'm glad to be back. But you know it's kind of neat when it's like oh I don't have to do anything yeah. right now. It's yeah, you know no, Sunday morning. And, yeah. yeah, that was fun. But uh, and it's weird. It's just been two weeks, and yet it feels like it's been longer than that. Like just yeah. missing one week yeah. feels weird to me. Yeah. It takes some time to get back into the swing of things. Yeah, it's strange. But uh, do you want to? I don't know if you want to tell. But do you want to tell people about your, uh, oh. your various adventures to the ER? I guess you could say. Yeah. Or urgent well, care? yeah, urgent care. Yeah, I just I had an infected hangnail that got bad and then got worse. It, but we need to not <laughs> go into more detail <laughs> than that because it's kind of yeah. gross. But so so Dennis isn't with us today because he's traveling. But uh, but Dennis, how was your New Year's? So he's in the chat and he says, fun, thanks, and went to a college friend's north of Baltimore. Okay, cool. Um, I tried very hard to stay up till midnight. And um, so I, I'm on two different medications that are that suppress appetite as, you know, side effects. And so uh, I have not yet acclimated to how much uh, booze I can drink on a completely empty stomach because I often mm. forget to eat all day long. <laughs> And wow. so, um, yeah, uh, at around, uh, 11, I started getting real sleepy and at about 1130, uh, my girlfriend, I was hanging out with my girlfriend and her brother and they look over, they're like, dude, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I think I need to go to bed. And they're like, okay. They trundled me off to bed and gave me a trash can. <laughs> um, but I mean, luckily I didn't need to use a trash can, but it was just like, uh, it it hit me so fast. So I almost made it to midnight this year, but not quite. Uh, Sam in the chat says uh, that in Iran, they actually uh, celebrate New Year's at the equinox. I think that's pretty I think that's pretty clever. Yeah, like the equinox. That makes a little bit more sense, you know, like, I mean, it's something, but, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, like, so I don't really do much for New Year's, which isn't to say that I'm against it. It's just that I don't make plans and I don't go out of my way. Um, and then most people, well, I don't know if, actually, I don't know if it's most people, but a lot of people will actually make a New Year's resolution, which that, too, to me, seems like there's just something wrong with that. Like, yeah. no, I think, I feel like every day you should, you know, strive towards some yeah. kind of goal and not use that as your excuse. Well, and, you know? and that, I mean, like, you know, any... Any uh, port in a storm, any leverage that you can get to improve yourself is great. Mm. But uh, studies show that, you know, New Year's resolutions are particularly bad right, uh, yeah. for, for people actually following through. So True. Um, anyway, yeah. So I guess happy 2020. We're back in the swing of things. And uh, I guess yeah. we can get going with the show. So in the news, we're going to talk about Chandrayaan 3, and uh, the first thing that you have in our little show notes is, hey, remember Chandrayaan 2? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, that's not the entire sentence, but yeah, um, that's a <laughs> that's kind of like a good way of thinking about it. Like, yeah, we had two, and you know that didn't go great, but there's already plans for Chandrayaan 3, and uh, I think that's awesome because they're moving quickly. Well, so yeah, so the whole sentence is, remember that Chandrayaan 2 failed due to greater than expected velocity reduction during the second phase of landing. We, we talked about this previously. Um, basically, the first braking phase went well, then the second braking phase, we don't know why, but they applied too much delta V, braked too quickly, and basically overran uh, the operation window of their software. So their, their software couldn't cope with the new uh, conditions and somehow took a crap and, and crashed uh, the satellite. And I don't know if we had this last time we talked about it, but now there's actually, um, there, there are photos of the crash site. So we'll, we'll link to those in the show notes and you can go check that out. But Chandrayaan-2 was a, a lander-orbiter combo. So they sent three vehicles to the moon, one stayed in orbit, two landed, one was planning to stay in place and the other one was going to rove around, right? So, so three different, 
three different vehicles. In this instance, um, since they already have the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter in place, they're not going to put another one of them into orbit. So um, they're just going to have the lander rover on Chandrayaan-3. And my hope, you know, my, my first instinct was, oh, cool. Well, maybe since they have more mass, they'll be able to land uh, a bigger landing segment or bigger surface segment. But keep in mind that the landing mass is limited by the lander systems, not by the launcher's systems. So even though the, I think it launched on a GSLV, uh, Chandrayaan-2 launched on a GSLV. I think that Chandrayaan-3 will also launch on a GSLV. Even though that launcher now has, you know, wider payload margins, that's not what's going to get more mass to the surface. Um, so they are indeed using uh, almost an identical uh, lander. I'm not sure if they're putting different instruments on or, or not. Uh, definitely new software this time, right? Yeah, let's um, hope. Yeah, but it, it sounds like the hardware is likely to, to all be... Uh, the same yeah well i mean that makes sense because it'll help them you know get the job done faster uh because mm -hmm. if not they yeah. would have to do a complete redesign or a partial redesign and right, right who wants yeah. to do that so new qual qualifications and all that and sam in the chat says yeah the instruments are all meant to be the same uh as far as they know so we don't have a, a firm launch date so there's no confirmed launch date but there seems to be hints that it could be as early as november of this year so again that's very impressive so but i think it also indicates just how little they have to change mm -hmm. they yeah. just have to build a new one and launch it. it honestly they probably had a spare ready to go that they just needed to do some updates on is that spare like an actual spare or is it just what they use for you know like ground testing and i don't know De de I mean, totally depends on their mission design. Huh. Okay, but uh, yeah, not too long. So, um, you know, in less than a year, we could be seeing Chandrayaan-3. So as you pointed out, I think that there is no orbital segment for this, but that's because they're going to use the Chandrayaan-2 orbiter because that's still there. That part went fine. Mm -hmm. And it has a mission life, I think, of around like seven years. So, you, you know, they expect that to be good for the next like seven years. So they yeah. have, so there's no reason to launch a second one. So this actually reduces the cost from about $136 million down to about 91. I mean, I think that's a pretty good cost for a mission. I don't know what what's that considered here. Uh, that's a, like there's a name for these types of missions, you know what I mean? And I cannot recall what they're called. There's like, you know, the big ones, and then there's like the medium class ones or whatever, which are around like 60 to $90 million. Oh, are, are you, know you talking I mean? about the different uh, the different NASA grants? Right, yeah. Or, well, there's or... like a name for the types of planetary missions that they do. So for example, Mars Curiosity would be like, you know, a big one, but then there's much lower cost ones that, that they do and that they can do, you know, two or three times a year. But then there's the big ones, which happen like once every five years or so. Can I cannot remember. Yeah, so Sam Sam's saying it's like Discovery. Uh oh, D Discovery is like in the the two to three million. Um, but like uh Psyche is four hundred and fifty million plus the launch cost. Uh the most expensive uh Discovery mission was like yeah, six hundred and forty, so that was Kepler. So di Discovery is is uh smaller than like the flagship programs, but still uh, <laughs> still pretty big. Um and then I also had a little uh tag along here. So Gaganyan is the um the crewed vehicle program. I think it's the name of the program and also the name of their orbiter. And so Gaganyan apparently has four astronaut candidates selected. So that that's pretty cool. They haven't announced who they are. Um, I don't know if they've officially confirmed that they have them. I think it was just a hint. But yeah, so so that's pretty cool. So Sam in the chat says, uh, any Gaganya missions beyond the initial orbital test are really fluffy. That's a good way to put it. Let's move on to short and sweet. We're going to do three this week, even though we just got two of us, but we'll make it work. So what's that first one? <laughs> All right. SpaceX plans a movable tower for pad 39A. In an effort to meet requirements for national security payloads, SpaceX is drawing up plans for a launch tower to house Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy rockets vertically. Currently, SpaceX payloads are integrated horizontally in hangars. 
but some payloads, such as highly sensitive intelligence gathering satellites, are designed to be mounted only in a vertical configuration. The vertical launch tower for Pad 39A will also allow for vehicle servicing while shielded from the elements and provide protection against high winds. So pretty much the same thing that like you see with ULA. Those are everywhere. If you go to the Cape, you see those big old, it's like, you know, a bunch of little miniature vabs everywhere, but SpaceX doesn't really have that. And then next up, Christina Cook breaks a record. Uh, so U.S. astronaut Christina Cook marked her 289th day in space on December 30th, which breaks the world record for the longest single spaceflight by a female. The female record for overall time spent in space is still held by Peggy Whitson, who is a veteran of five missions and has logged a total of 665 days in space. Cook is scheduled to return to Earth on February 6th, which will put her at 328 days in space, only 12 days shy of Mark Kelly's U.S. astronaut record for a single duration spaceflight. So just to be clear, this is the longest time, or this is the world record that she has now set, not a U.S. record. So I think that's pretty neat. All right, third and finally, early signs of the clean space age. That's uh, certified Ben coined. I don't know if anybody else is using <laughs> that term. Early signs of the clean space age. Iridium announces willingness to pay for third-party cleanup of failed satellites. So Iridium deorbits most of its retired satellites, although it has some 30 vehicles dead in the water and unable to complete the final phase of their operational life. Some are low enough to fall out of orbit in the next few decades, but 27 are high enough to take much, much longer. CEO Matt Dash says that they'd shell out money to deorbit them right now. If only someone could do it for $10,000 each. While that's unrealistic, and Desh says he expects the cost to realistically be on the orders of $1 to $10 million, it's still a step in the right direction. Very cool. Yeah, I like to hear that. Hi, welcome to the interview segment. Um, we have a really fun interview this week. Um, so... When I was at IAC, I attended not enough of the interactive presentations, but I got to a couple of them. And one of the ones that I was able to see um, was our guest today, Dr. Martin Elvis. And uh, he had a really crazy idea th that he wrote up into this paper that there was a really interesting look into the potential future of asteroid mining. So uh, welcome, Dr. Elvis. How are you? I'm good. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. So so you're the senior astrophysicist over at the Center for Astrophysics and the Smithsonian. Can you tell us a little bit about those two organizations and, and why I see them together with the slash between them? Oh, that's a new marketing branding thing that it used to be called <laughs> the Harvard Dasher for Astrophysics. And uh, basically, no one got past the Harvard. So uh, most of it, most of us are Smithsonian employees, and uh, we didn't like to be so uh, sort of missed. So now, what we do is up front and center, Center for Astrophysics, and it's uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, center for doing astronomy in the world. So it's at least three hundred PhD scientists. So I'm just one of them. Okay, so why don't you tell us about this paper that you presented at IAC? Uh, okay, so a, a bit of background is that around the time that planetary resources and deep space industries announced, uh, there was a lot of talk of how uh, there were trillions of uh, dollars of uh, riches in space. And my first reaction being a scientist was, oh, let's put the numbers in. And mm -hmm. it wasn't too encouraging mm -hmm. because there may be, uh, you know, 100,000 or so uh, near-Earth asteroids, which are the easy ones to get to, on average. But uh, when you say, well, how many of them are going to be rich in water, for instance, something people want to mine, or for that matter, the other thing is uh, platinum and other precious metals from a different type of asteroid. And then they ask, uh, well, okay, there's that many uh, carbonaceous ones, which are water-bearing, and of those, only a fraction are rich in water, and of those, only a small fraction are actually that you can get to with today's rockets. I came out with a depressing answer that there were 10 that were worth about a billion dollars or more. And wow. so the, the asteroid mining companies really didn't like me when I said that. Although I've, I've recently been assured by Chris Lewicki, of, uh, formerly of Planetary Resources, that uh, it had no effect on their funding. So I wasn't the cause of their mm. demise, he assured me. <laughs> he did have a, a couple of drinks at that point. I don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> anyway, so that the thing is that uh, that was five years ago, before we had uh, Falcon Heavy. and those new that and the other new rockets coming along have got a much bigger c3 and uh, than we had before so we can get to harder to reach 
near-Earth asteroids. So the numbers are going up. I've got a student right now calculating away on how many there are in principle, just to uh, that we could actually mine at a worth going to. But it soon raises the question, well, yeah, but there's a million times or several million times more resources in the main belt asteroids. So why don't we go there? And the answer is because it's it's hard with the rockets we have. But one student of mine first calculated just uh, how many there were at given delta V. Uh, it's okay to use the word delta V here, right? You're techie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah just yeah, checking. That's fine. You, are, you already <laughs> used the term C3, so we're yeah, good. Yeah, oh, I did. <laughs> yeah. You're right. <laughs> okay, just I just I just knew uh, you guys are into it. There we go. Actually, actually, we we've had a, a couple of listeners ask us to define terms. So could you really quickly define uh, C three? I think I think delta v should be should be pretty familiar to people so, listening so, to the show. But C three might be a little too esoteric. Well, they're, they're very similar, really. Uh, delta v is the uh, change in velocity needed to rendezvous with an asteroid with anything from another or from one orbit to another. And usually we calculate it from low Earth orbit to a rendezvous orbit with the asteroid. So you need a, at least one burn to get out of low Earth orbit and another burn to then put you into the asteroid orbit. Sometimes it's more efficient to use three burns, but anyway. This, the C3 is the uh, excess velocity you have, you need at uh, infinity to reach the asteroid orbit. And that's usually a number. So, so it's, it's basically the speed that you leave the Earth is a, a simplified well, version. Yeah. At if you coasted to to, yes. to a stop at infinity, yeah. you'd have a C3 of zero, which isn't going to get you to an asteroid. Right. So you need a bit more velocity than that. Actually, it's, it's actually velocity squared in, in technically. So it's right. uh, a bit more confusing than delta V. But C3 is what's quoted by the rocket makers. Uh, so it's useful to mm -hmm. uh, convert things into the, that unit. Okay, where was I? So uh, we found, we, we calculated uh, in that case, delta V for from low Earth orbit to rendezvous asteroid, rendezvous orbit, uh, for all 700 and odd thousand uh, main belt asteroids, and found there were a few that were accessible today uh, with Vulcan heavy type uh, rockets. Uh, but, but because we can't find small asteroids in the main belt, the few, the few that we found are actually uh, really quite big and worth a lot. So there are actually a, a tiny, a small number, but still more than 10, uh, main belt asteroids we could go to right now. The travel times tend to be a bit long, but you know that's a business calculation. Then we just thought, well, you know, it'd be much easier if you were starting from Mars, uh, and if you, need a, if you need a base for mining your asteroids, for instance, bringing back large amounts of fairly raw material and then processing them to extract the valuable stuff uh, in Mars orbit. So let's say Phobos, uh, on the moon of Phobos, which would be handy because uh, it gives you a nice inertial platform to stand on. That that might be interesting to, uh, to work out. Is that a good idea? And so if you do put yourself on Phobos and use that as your uh, refinery, uh, then actually we worked out then the Delta V to uh, get to all those asteroids. And it, it cuts it down a huge amount, of course, to something that's actually quite feasible with uh, you know, reasonable rockets, rocketry. So we thought that was quite interesting. It seems that you've tried to characterize just getting to these asteroids, and, that's, and that seems to be the main thing that you're focusing on here. Well, that's what we can calculate mm -hmm. with, with no problem. Right, yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, because that's like, you know, the easy part. That's like the known variable, yeah. but um, yes. there's, a, there's a lot more that goes into it. So what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, there's so much more to mining asteroids, and I don't even know where to begin. There are so many questions that I'm sure right. most listeners have. So how do you address those questions? So, well, I... I'm an astronomer, so I first start by thinking of uh, characterizing 750,000 objects to find the ones that are really valuable. And that's or, uh, pretty daunting. And you would do it with telescopes to at least pick out the ones that are likely to be water-bearing or for rich in metals, which are the two things people talk about. And so that would take a lot of work. There's two telescopes, uh, one being built, almost ready now, called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which will measure optical light and will find uh, very many more asteroids than we've ever had before. Big telescope in Chile. And is that mostly looking at main belt asteroids? It will mostly find main belt asteroids. It will look, they're, they're, more, they're much more interested in potentially hazardous asteroids, which are near-Earth objects, near-Earth right. asteroids. That's the justification. So, so while they're looking, they're going to tend to find main belt asteroids, but they really want to find near-Earth asteroids. Right. Yeah. And that's true of all the near-Earth object surveys. They all 
come up with scads and scads of main belt asteroids at the same time. Uh, because they, they see a dot moving across the sky and then they have to decide where right. it actually is before they can decide if they want to keep observing. Right. And usually the near-Earth asteroids move faster because they're closer. Uh, sure. But so in, they, they zip across the sky. But no, there, they, there's some ambiguity there. So you sure. have to be careful. That, that So detecting them with the uh, large synoptic, sorry, large synoptic survey telescope, LSST, will give you not only how bright they are and what their orbit is. If you're lucky, it'll give you uh, colors because they take observations in five different bands, sometimes six, usually five. And if they're not very fast rotators or if they're spherical, close to spherical, then you'll get accurate colors out. And that's enough to tell you what type of asteroid they are, more or less. That's pretty good. You, you said if, the, if they're not spherical, you're going to no, get... No, sorry, if they're almost, if they're more or less spherical. Oh. More or less. Right. So they're not changing. So, yeah. Because okay. the problem okay. is if you wait and uh, to t you have, you're not aren't taking these pictures simultaneously, you're taking you to one color, right. then a few minutes later, you do another, then a few minutes later, you do another or sometimes even uh, more more separated than that. And if it's an elongated asteroid that's rotating during that time, then the area it's, 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 uh, shine, it's showing you changes, and that means you, you get a measurement of how bright it is in one color that doesn't, can't be matched up with how bright mm. it is in another color because it was a different area where you were looking at. Is it, is it that difficult to, or to, to characterize mm -hmm. the, the light curve, right? Is that, that's what it's called when they flash, it's called the light curve? Well, the, uh, the time history of them is a light curve, right? Just how bright okay. they are versus oh, okay. time. And you get okay. you get some clue of that, yes. But but it's chaotic enough that it's hard to really lock down. No, it's just you don't know what it is in advance, and you may oh. not have enough observations to know what the period or oh. rotation period is, okay. or how or how how uh, how big the amplitude is. If it's a big amplitude, then it's probably very far from spherical. Uh -huh. uh, so so there's a limitation to what you can do with LSST. We'll find them. It will give for some of them, and particularly in the main belt, it'll give you because they tend to be bigger and slower rotators. So they'll give you some idea of color. There's another plan to send out a, uh, a telescope uh, into space, uh, probably at the Earth-Sun-L1 point, which is convenient for finding, you know, interior to the Earth's orbit, so you're good, it's good for finding near-Earth asteroids in particular. This is a plan called NEOCAM, which was developed over the last 10 years by Amy Meinzer, who was at JPL most of that time and is now at the University of Arizona. And uh, they did a lot of technical development and so on. And the problem was it could never get funded because it was competing with uh, science, planetary science missions. And uh, planetary scientists don't tend to like uh, surveys. They weren't very happy when Kepler was proved as one of the planet-finding mission that was so successful was approved as part of their budget. So it, it just never won. It never got to the top. It was always close, but it never got to the top. And now the NASA's uh, Thomas Serbuchan, who's the, what is he, Associate Administrator for Science? I think that's the right title. Something very like that. He's in charge of science at, uh, at uh, NASA headquarters has just uh, uh, announced that he's going to make it happen. It's, he's changed the name. I don't forget what it is, but it's basically the same mission. Now, the great thing about this is it's an infrared mission. So it's not looking at reflected starlight. It's looking at the uh, re-emission of the, the starlight that's absorbed, heats up the asteroid, and it starts and it glows. Near-Earth asteroids glow at uh, temperatures uh, similar to that of Earth. Mm. And so they peak around... 10 micron wavelength. Ones out at the main belt will be a, a little cooler, and so they'll tend to go at longer wavelengths. But what's good is, to a first approximation, the emission you see is a black body, and the black body, uh, you know how far away the object is from the orbit, and so you know the emitting area, and that tells you the size just from how bright it is. It's not that simple, because really the, the the asteroid is hotter on one side where it's being illuminated and uh, cooler on the other side. And so it depends on lots of details of the of the uh, thermal conductivity of the asteroid. But it's a it's a lot better approximate and you can model that reasonably well. But it's a and it's a much better way of finding out how big something is that, than just looking at how bright it is in the optical light, which is just reflected sunlight, because some uh, asteroids are incredibly faint. They're, they're blacker than a, a blackboard, fresh blackboard. They reflect a few percent of the light. And some reflect are very bright and reflect a, a, as much as a quarter of the light. Mm. 
So just from the amount of light you see, of sunlight, reflected sunlight you see, you can be off by a factor of five in, in the area that, of the asteroid. So that's a factor of 11 in the volume. And so your estimate of how much it's worth is pretty mm. useless without a better better understanding. So there's a lot of, lot of remote telescopic uh, um, prospecting to be done in bulk. Uh, before we can really, uh, even before we can mine main belt asteroids or even the near-Earth asteroids, there's a very surprisingly little colors and spectroscopy available to say what they are. So that that's the side of the uh, the unknowns that I know about. The next set of unknowns would be the um, the details of the engineering of actually mining an asteroid. And I'm not an engineer. Uh, I've talked to some people about it. There's a lot you can do. If you want to mine water, it's relatively easy. In principle, you put the whole asteroid in a bag or a, bun or a big you know, big chunk of it and uh, heat it up and the water hmm. comes off. It's, it's, not, it's not there as ice. It's there usually. It will be in the main belt, actually, but because uh, it's cold enough there. But in near-Earth asteroids, it's probably not in ice. It's in... Uh, uh, OH bonds inside uh, rocks like clays and so on. But if you heat them up, the water comes out, and that's been demonstrated uh, on relevant kinds of meteorite. So there's a company called TransAstra with Joel Sircell, who is well worth talking to, and he's been looking at these mining details and uh, has, has, has come a long way in demonstrating that you could mine water. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I've never heard of mining water in that way because I, I did always assume it was just ice. No, no, it, it turns out it's unlikely to be ice. These most near-Earth asteroids have had a complicated orbital history, which of, you often, perhaps not always, but often takes them very close to the sun uh, for you know a few thousand years or something, uh, even tens of thousands of years, and uh, then they get scattered again into a more an orbit that uh, passes the Earth. But when they're close to the sun, they, they, it's expected that any ice, any uh, pure actual water in any form will get mm -hmm. uh, evaporated off. And there's probably maybe some ways around that, but it's that's currently what everybody's thinking. So, so yeah. So, if you found an asteroid and you wanted to extract the water, you would have to put a bag around it. So, I assume it would have to be a fairly small one because I don't know how big of a bag you could <laughs> wrap around an asteroid. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, mean, uh, I think Joel's planning to uh, Joel Sorcell is planning to mine very small asteroids, five meters across, something like that, ten meters, mm -hmm. and then do but do lots of them. So. But the bag doesn't would, doesn't have to be particularly strong or anything because there's there's no you're not holding the bag holding this huge asteroid up even if it has a mass of a million tons or something doesn't matter you're you're in orbit although wouldn't there be pressure created by the water vapor I mean it does have to be yes yeah. so it has to have it could, but that's a lot easier that's just one atmosphere or two atmospheres or something it's not uh, nothing compared with a bag that has to hold up a million tons yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 an easier problem than you might first guess. It's still a big problem. How are you going to wrap this, uh, unwrap this bag and uh, get it over something large? So uh, it's interesting to, to talk about the challenges of mining in zero, the, the benefits of mining in zero gravity, but there are actually a lot of challenges to mining in zero gravity and having just a little bit of gravity would actually be helpful. And mm -hmm. your presentation at IAC actually had a, a really interesting uh, location that has a little bit of gravity, but not too much. Can you talk about right. that? Well, yeah. So Phobos is convenient in that it gives you uh, a place to stand, right? And then you, you do have you can start to use uh, gravity uh, methods, the methods of refining that uh, do allow you to use gravity. It's not very much gravity, but it is a lot more than that of the asteroid itself. <laughs> right, right. And that can be ha helpful. For instance, dust will settle mm. on Phobos in some reasonable time. If you're completely out in out of the any gravitational well except the asteroids, dust will hang around for a long time. And that can be very bad for your machinery. You're bound to create a lot of dust as you mine. Yeah, right. And, and you know, it's, it gets even worse because if you want to collect that dust because it's got, you know, water in it, it, it just it's gone. It's really difficult to collect. But if you, yeah, yeah if you, if you happen to be on Phobos. Yes. It, you, that's why you have to have a bag. That's sorry. That's, yeah. That was the whole point yeah, exactly. of the bag. Yeah. So exactly. if, if you're on Phobos and it all just kind of settles down, that, that makes everything a lot easier. Yeah, indeed. I think so. It also, if you want people around, then Phobos gives you a lot of rock to hide under against mm -hmm. the cosmic rays. So if people are needed at all, 
then it's a much better place for them to be. So, so the math that you ran um, talks a lot about the the number of asteroids that are available from Phobos. I'm assuming you were originally looking at Mars orbit, and then you went, "Hey, actually, there's something handy in Mars orbit," or, or was it the other way around? No, no, that's right. Yeah, we just thought, well, Mars orbit. Yeah, because uh, people want to go to Mars, so maybe that will be a way to. Uh, uh, maybe we can piggyback on that uh, infrastructure. That, but on the other hand, it might turn out to be the other way around, that because Phobos or Mars orbit in general is a good place to do asteroid mining, that might be the way people start to get to Mars in a big way, as opposed to occasional expeditions. Because once, once you've got a, a, lot, a big operation happening in, and making a lot of money, I hope, in uh, Mars orbit, then... A trip to the surface is not that big a deal. Well, so you're saying that that there would be a lot of money made. Well, that's the point of doing the mining. On the well, right, right, but so, <laughs> but okay, but where's okay? So I'm just trying to understand exactly where. So they're mining asteroids in Mars orbit, but not necessarily going down to the surface. So what's oh, no. being done with those resources? So like, I guess the question that keeps coming up, you know, in this type of discussion is exactly what do you do with the resources that you mine? I think it's a really good question. Yeah, right. Because my, my favorite saying is, in space, no one can hear you sell. <laughs> uh, because right now there is no market in space for any of this, right? Uh, for any, any product. The space station with three people uses three tons of water a year, so they're very good at recycling, and uh, they have to be because it's very expensive to get water up there. The hope is that there would be a lot more markets um, in space, in particular, uh, preferably in a high orbit, like geostationary or beyond, uh, where where the demand for water would be uh, much greater, and then it becomes energetically like a thousand times easier to bring it from an asteroid than from the ground. And so maybe you can make money that way. So what would you use the water for? Life support, obviously, breathing even, mm-hmm. uh, separate out the oxygen. Uh, also, uh, life support in the sense of stopping you dying of cancer by having uh, mm-hmm. a nice, uh, using it as a radiation shield, which it's very mm-hmm. good at, but you need a, a, you know meters of water. So you're talking thousands of tons for any reasonable sized uh, habitat. The other one is as rocket fuel. And you need, for instance, if you want to deorbit all the space junk mm-hmm. and you use just water as a propellant, uh, you need hundreds of tons. That's only one way of deorbiting it, of course, but there are, it's a real problem that has to be addressed. The other is refueling satellites, especially um, geostationary satellites. If you can refuel them with water as a thruster or, or hydrogen oxygen, that would be uh, a market. People are worried right now, of course, that there won't be any geostationary satellites because it'll become obsolete with these big um, mm-hmm. constellations, internet mm-hmm. constellations now like Starlink and OneWeb. So it's a good question whether there will be a market. So you're saying that like even if these resources are mined in Mars orbit, they they might still be transported to Earth orbit, and that's just because it's still yeah. less energy than bringing it up from the surface. Oh, yeah. Yes. Huh. That's true from an energy standpoint. It's just hard to fathom. That, from a dollar standpoint? Who knows? Yeah, well, it, it just right. seems hard to fathom that, that that would be something that you would actually do, but it does actually – I mean, I th- I think it probably does make economic sense, actually, you know, so – Well, I don't know. I, I hope it will, but I, I don't think anyone knows yeah. yet. If it was obvious that it, we, that it would, then we'd already be doing it, right? This is why I say the, uh, the way of uh, a scientist thinks and the way an entrepreneur thinks are very different. So I'm a scientist and I think, oh, well, I don't know where that'll make money. That sounds ridiculous. Yeah, mm-hmm. But the entrepreneur can't wait for it to be obvious. You have to jump at some mm-hmm. point before everybody else gets in there, right? So the first, you have to jump at the right time. So apparently the two asteroid mining companies that were taken over uh, and are no longer really doing asteroid mining, uh, they must have jumped too soon. Who knows? Maybe Transastra will jump next and get it right Mm -hmm. or some other company. It's always interesting to talk about all these possibilities, but I think that this particular discussion um, Mm -hmm. is more valuable to me personally because it's it's about the math. It's it's the things that we can know and not all the vagaries of, of economics. And in uh, fact, that's my my impetus for all of this is right. that I got annoyed with the vague statements of <laughs> the next trillionaire, the first trillionaire will be a space miner and stuff like that. It was two, two billions and billions for me. Put in the actual numbers. Let's see. Yeah. So that's what I've been trying to do with this, these series of papers. Okay. So, so let's, let's talk more about those concrete numbers that we know. If we compare um, using Earth, e- even low Earth orbit, 
as a mining base versus a Mars orbit, how much more valuable is a Mars orbit? Well, I'm assuming for this that you're mining the main belt asteroids, right? Now, I did say there aren't there aren't very many near-Earth asteroids that were accessible five years ago. The number now is probably 10 times as many, probably a bit more. So it's likely that the first mining will take place with these smaller, nearer asteroids just to get things going. So I, I don't think you would start, uh, you wouldn't go from Leo to Mars straight away. Mm-hmm. You would you'd do, you'd take it in steps and, and try to make money off the easier to get to ones first. If that takes off and the market grows and there are huge hotels in space with swimming pools and what have you, I don't know, <laughs> then, then or I, what I like, by the way, for huge space hotels is everyone could play Quidditch. It'd be great. <laughs> right. Yeah, you have a little CO2 canister at the end of your broom. Yeah, right? yeah, it's yeah. great. <laughs> oh, there's a market for that. Anyway, I think so, yeah. But that's that's a pretty big size you need if you have a full size Quidditch. Uh, mm. uh, what do they call it? I think pitch. it's a pitch. Yeah. Probably a pitch. Okay, yeah. So, so you'd have to have a mini one to begin with. Anyway, suppose there was this huge tourist industry. People aren't going to want so much recycled water, and they want more creature comforts. So that would make a big market for water, for example. Uh, if that really took off like that and it looked like it was going to keep growing, then you'd soon want to go to bigger asteroids and stop messing about with go go to one where you can keep mining it in, in continuously for a while instead of going having to find a new one every time. And that would be out in the main belt because they they they're just so much bigger and, and more numerous. And then you then you would set up on, on Phobos. So uh, five years ago, we were looking at ten asteroids of a billion or more. You're saying now it's probably more like a hundred, uh, going from or more, Earth yeah. or, or more. Okay, um, going going from Earth orbit. How many main belt asteroids are available to us? Uh, it's down at the ten type level right now. Okay. A few, but I think we could increase that. It will, it will obviously if Starship gets going, then I think that that'll have a pretty good C three. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But that would mean we could uh, we could increase that number quite a lot. And so, just to be clear, you're talking about going to the belt and like bringing the whole asteroid back, and not just a chunk of it. Uh, well, I that, I think if you bring the whole asteroid back, there's no point in go doing anything with Phobos because you, it just adds a bit of delta v. You're going down a potential well and then out again, not very far down. But uh, but if you want to refine it, it but it, you know, the rocket equation makes it hard to move mass around in space. You don't want to move a million tons if you can help it. And the water is perhaps it can be ten percent roughly of the mass of the asteroid. So you'd really prefer to only bring back that ten percent from my, from the main belt to Earth orbit. Uh, it's much cheaper and rock in propellant. So you so you'd refine it. Uh, you it, it's relatively easy to move the delta v from from uh, the asteroid orbit to. Phobos is fairly small, so you, you could bring it back like that there and refine it and bring then just bring back the 10% that's water. Okay, because I'm just trying to get a handle on, um, like, you had said that you're, that, like, you have to take size into consideration, and I'm just wondering what exactly that means, like, you know, or like, what is the best size for, you know, an asteroid to make it a candidate? Or does that even matter? So, but I guess that depends on if you're going, you know, down a gravity well, like you said, or exactly where you're going to and from. Yeah. So a hundred meter diameter asteroid is about a million tons. So it would contain a, a good one would contain a hundred thousand tons of water that would keep you going for a while. So that's not a very big asteroid, especially in the main belt. The ones we know there tend to be much bigger, whereas uh, there aren't that many bigger ones in the near-Earth asteroids. The que- so, so, so it's, do you want to grab a bunch of 100-meter asteroids and keep supplying them to uh, Phobos, where you extract the water and have a, have a, a, a good base uh, with repair facilities and so on? Or do you want to go to one much bigger asteroid, say a kilometer across, uh, where there's now, gosh, 10,000 times as much water and just set up a base there and mine the entire asteroid in for long term. That's that's a decision that depends a lot on on the business details. I think it seems like we're talking here mostly about like just the water, right? Well, because that's something people they think they can sell. Mm-hmm. The carbonaceous asteroids are full of organics uh, materials. In fact, I was told that if you take one of these um, meteorites that is a carbonaceous meteorite and slice a, a fresh layer off and smell it, it smells like tar. So mm. when they say carbonaceous, they don't mean it's got a few extra little bits of 
carbonate. Mm. It's it's solid, gooey stuff, right? Mm. It looks like a rock, but it's actually uh, very largely made of uh, organic compounds. So within that, you could imagine uh, making methane, for instance, directly, and that that's obviously a, a, a good fuel. You just need then need the oxidizer coming from the water. So if you and then there's a lot of other things you could you could use all that material for. If you want to get into building large structures in space, then you want probably want to find the iron asteroids, which are again not just slightly rich in iron they are solid iron with nickel too though it's actually steel and uh, if you've ever if you ever get a chance to see an iron asteroid a meteorite in a museum or something it, it's pretty impressive that that's solid iron uh, that's because they're the remnant of a of a core of a, of a protoplanet planetesimal which heated up enough through radioactivity when it was uh, born that the materials differentiated and as in the Earth, the iron sank to the center. And it, in doing so, it carried with it all these precious metals because they are those those particular missing uh, rare elements are ones that d dissolve in iron, liquid iron, very easily. They're called siderophiles. And so they went they had all the all the rich platinum and uh, palladium and so on uh, on Earth. Most of it is directly beneath our feet, six thousand kilometers. So uh, there's very little of it left in the crust. Whereas the same thing happened in these uh, planetesimals, and then they banged together, they smashed each other to pieces, and so you're left with chunks of this core behind. And they are therefore not only solid iron, but they are quite rich in these uh, precious metals. So they're, very, they're promising in that sense. But there's still the concentration is you know 10 grams per ton. Of, uh, of platinum, for instance, which isn't that great. But if you want to use, if you want to start building things in space, like solar power uh, stations or habitats, then you want the iron. And so you'd be going after those asteroids. Okay, so um, what really interested me from your presentation was you actually had some numbers of asteroids. So we, we talked about near-Earth asteroids that are available now are probably in the 100 range. Um, if we're talking yeah. about using Phobos as a mining base, how many asteroids are available to Phobos? Right, so it depends on what delta V you allow for. The number we got uh, for the near-Earth asteroids was assuming five kilometers a second as a limit, right? And that, that came from the fact that the OSIRIS-REx mission uh, to Bennu, an asteroid, Bennu has a 5.1 kilometer per second uh, delta V from Earth, and we could, I know we could get two tons there because that's what uh, uh, OSIRIS-REx weighed. So uh, and that was 10, and now maybe in principle it's 100 or a, a few hundred at most, right? And instead for the main belt from Phobos, it's 100,000, and those are bigger than the, the one, the near-Earth asteroid, so in terms of the mass available, it's, it's even bigger. The Delta V you speak of, that's just to get to that asteroid, or does that include having to bring those resources back to Phobos? Yes, that's fairly symmetric, so it's about the same. Okay, but so so five five kilometers there, five kilometers back. So actually, a total of tens could because I just wasn't clear on like when you said the delta V, if you meant just to get there or round trip or whatever. So that that that's actually a a good point because uh, when you're leaving from low Earth orbit, and one where I need to be fairer to the near Earth asteroids, it's the five to five kilometers a second from low Earth orbit to. The asteroid is most if most of that is getting from the low earth orbit to an escape velocity so if you come back with a much bigger mass of asteroid material you don't want to go to low earth orbit necessarily you'd really rather sell it in a high earth orbit because then you use a lot less energy to bring it back and the equivalent thing doesn't really happen to and from phobos so you 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 have a bit of a disadvantage there which we didn't go into in that paper but then once you bring it back to from phobos to a high earth orbit around the earth, that that's fairly cheap i i really love this upshot if you're willing to use phobos as your your base of operations and if you can solve the problems of actually implementing the the resources that you've that you've built up at Phobos, it's several orders of magnitude more asteroids available to you from Phobos. Yeah, yeah, um, something like a thousand times the number, yeah. and perhaps ten or more thousand times the yeah. uh, the mass. Yeah, that that's getting close to you know something that looks more sustainable as you know humans yeah. living in space. Right. So I think the near Earth objects are a stepping stone. Yeah. To to uh, and assuming everybody makes profits all the way along. Uh, it, 
then the, the obvious thing is to start setting up on Phobos and mining from there. So what kind of considerations do we have to take into account in picking which asteroids are available uh, from different locations? I mean, inclination is probably the biggest determining factor, right? Oh, yeah. So uh, the inclination is really bad news, and so is high ellipticity. The ones that are easy to mine are going to match the Mars orbiters pretty closely if you want to mine them from, from Phobos. And incl inclinations of a few degrees are okay, but it, it rapidly gets worse. And, and what what's the... Like how how distributed is the is the main belt? Do you happen to know? Like, well, the main uh, belt it goes out to several AU, right? right. So um, Jupiter and so you get five you get you get all sorts of inclinations in there, right? It's not that they, I mean, oh, I'm, yes. I'm assuming that they they tend to cluster around the ecliptic, but they kind of uh, you know. they do. Uh, the ones we want to get to are uh, tend to be uh, not in the outer part of the main belt at all, but mm. in the uh, the the region nearest to Mars orbit. Mm. So Mars is like 1.3 AU, 1.4. And so between 1 and 2 AU for their semi-major axis. Uh, yeah, your paper actually said um, an inclination, I'm reading here, it says under 5 degrees and a small semi-major axis of 2 to 2.5 two AU. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and so, so did you... Uh, I, did you pick these numbers and then count up all the asteroids that match those numbers? Uh, Is... Well, no, we did the actual. No, it's it's better to go from the actual delta v calculation, okay, which gives you the real number. But then you say, okay. well, where are these low delta v objects? And you see that that's where they are. Ah, uh, okay, I see. That's not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so yeah, this this must have been some really complicated math then. If you're if you're basically doing the the delta v calculations to each individual asteroid and then i oh, guess yeah. sorting them by by delta v uh yes so it it's uh it wasn't it's not a ridiculous calculation it was done on a laptop in uh, in a few hours <laughs> yeah. okay but okay. Uh, it's it's an awful lot of objects you wouldn't want to do it yeah. by hand and so we haven't we we don't have a um catalog of every main belt or even you know any of oh no no, certainly not. So I'm assuming that you work with the numbers that you have and then were able to extrapolate out? Uh, we didn't extrapolate. This is the actual known population. So there's actually oh, more wow. than we, we calculated. No, no, no. It, it, oh, that's... Um, that's... That's even better. Yeah, that actually kind of hurts my head a little bit. Okay, well, actually, it, that's what I'm moving over to doing now. I'm start, starting with the near-Earth asteroid. Instead of just the well, 20,000 that we know, we're, we're operating with a... Uh, simulated population, the full population that uh, has been simulated in this case by Mikhail Granvik and a, a team of his, and that you, so you can model eight hundred thousand or so uh, near Earth asteroids down to much smaller sizes, and that will then give us statistically the right the answer: uh, how many are actually accessible within a certain delta v or c three. But th that only gives us so if we use a statistical sample uh, like that it's not real but it gives us the right distributions of delta v so we'll get the right numbers roughly pretty well but they won't be actual objects we can go to so that need, that's where you need a lot more prospecting work right 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 um so so can you talk at all about how we're able to form these um simulated populations how we're able to do those extrapolations uh, a little bit so what uh, mikhail uh, does is take populate the main belt of asteroids with very many objects and then uh, let time pass and every so often they will go one of, one of them will go through one of these points where they get deflected into a, an orbit which comes near the, near the earth through interactions with Jupiter primarily and uh, so that that's an awful lot of computation he, he ends up with 800,000 but he starts with a much bigger population then he compares his results with what we know of the population today and normalizes the thing, the the two, and that gives you a a a good population that represents what the near Earth object population looks like. So it's actually a fairly robust estimate. It's not just you know counting yeah, but, on your fingers. So it's been ref it's it, it's a refinement of somebody else's. Uh, Bill Botke mm -hmm. published a paper in two thousand two, which has been used a lot, and there've been others in in between times. Uh, so this is an ongoing research program to get at the best possible model for the near Earth asteroid population over 20 years so it's, it's really a long-term effort so you're making all these estimations but i'm wondering if as far as actually maybe one day mining have you done any calculations on what asteroids might be accessible just because you know some of them have some 
crazy spins and so forth. And so you might not necessarily be able to mine from them anyway. So what are the numbers on that? Right. Well, we're going to know a lot more about the uh, spin of asteroids thanks to a very unlikely source, the, the TESS mission, which is designed to find uh, exoplanets transiting across the face of their host stars, which means they have to scan a large piece of sky with very accurate uh, photometry measurements, very accurate measures of how bright a star is. And many times, because you're looking for brief events that uh, where the star dims a teeny bit, like uh, less than 1%, tenth of a percent even. It turns out that they find lots and lots of asteroids, and many of them are already known as asteroids, but we know very little about them. Uh, and they find that they have hundreds of measurements and can track the light curves of these. So we're going to get many thousands, I suspect, of good light curves for a large population of asteroids over the next few years as TESS does its job. Uh, it's an un unlikely bonus from a planet hunting mission, but it, it's going to happen. So huh. we'll have a much better idea of the spin states of these objects. Some of them are not just rotating fast. Some of them are tumbling. They're, they're not rotating about a principal axis. Yeah. So, so it's not even repeatable behavior, which can make it much harder to... You can't just go to the pole and start rotating your spacecraft at the same speed right. and come down. Yeah. Uh, it, it, does, it, it essentially has no pole. Those are yeah. tricky. Yeah, yeah that, that tumbling behavior is always fascinating me. I love when, when folks mm -hmm. on the International Space Station demonstrate it with you know, oddly shaped objects. Oh, yes. I, I, I saw a very nice presentation at the IAC by a guy who is a physicist who is also into uh, ballet oh. and is a dancer. And so he took, uh, he went, he worked out using a simple model of humans, you know, the, the ways to rotation modes in which you're stable and ones in which you're not, depending <laughs> on where you put your arms and legs. <laughs> and he then did a zero-G flight and demonstrated it, oh, and he cool. had video of it. Oh, that's really cool. So that's certainly a real problem. And yeah. so there's another problem with mining asteroids, which doesn't get a lot of treatment, which is that they're mostly rubble piles. They've been beaten up so much, uh, they're held together. They're just piles of rock held together by their own very weak gravity. Right, they're not a solid body, and the densities of asteroids, uh, where we can measure them, which isn't very many. Uh, are pretty low. They're much lower than that of rock, solid rock. So more instead of being a, 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 like a density of a few, they're more like a density of one, similar to water. Uh, so that means they must have a lot of voids inside them, empty spaces. They can be mostly empty space. So that's a whole area of physics uh, called granular physics, which is uh, a very interesting area. It's quite new. And that rocks behave very strangely, or any, any pile of stuff behaves very strangely in, in those circumstances. But just imagine if that's what you're trying to grab onto with your heavy mining equipment, and you want to drill into this rock, you hold onto the rock and start drilling and you, you, the rock starts floating away because you, 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 or you, it reacts against, you push with your drill and the rock you're standing on it will pull, pull away. Um, and you could keep doing that and there's, uh, there's nothing, there's no actual there to hold onto. So there's a whole lot of uh, engineering issues related to that. Yeah, as as evidenced by um, Hayabusa, the the first Hayabusa, <laughs> not quite being able to do what it was supposed to do, you know, and it took us a second Hayabusa and now Osiris Rex to be even able to understand how to pick something up. Well, Osiris Rex has, has, has this problem that the whole surface is covered with boulders and there's almost mm -hmm. nowhere to land, but they mm -hmm. found a few spots where they can land. Actually, they uh, they have now down-selected to one sample site. That's right, with a backup, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, so that's just good, but it, it took a lot more work than they thought because right. uh, there were far more boulders on the surface than they expected. Yeah. All right, so we have two traditional final questions. I'll go ahead and ask you the penultimate question, which is where would you like to be found on the internet? Uh, it's hard to Google me because I'm Elvis. <laughs> uh, but if you but Google Martin Elvis, uh, you'll find my uh, website, which is in a state of incredible primitiveness. But it has a few things. I'm going to have the uh, paper we've been talking about. Uh, I'll put it on the archive for those who know about those that system and I, uh, you guys can put it on your uh, show uh, website and then uh, next fall uh, Yale University Press should be publishing a book I've just uh, just about finished with about asteroid mining which is 
current, uh, currently it's called Love, Fear, and Greed, uh, Asteroids in Our Future. But we'll see what they, they eventually call it. Well, that's a good title. Yeah, I, I vote for that title. Yeah. All right. And the ultimate question, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be? <laughs> uh, oxygen. Uh, besides that, well... That's a given. Yeah, oh. let, let's uh, let's assume that you get to go to uh, to a nice uh, commercial space station. So they they have everything you're going to need to live and breathe and eat. Well, then of course I'd I'd want to take my Quidditch uh, broom because we could play Quidditch <laughs> up there. Okay, That's yes. my favorite so, thing. So, but if you already use that i can think of something else yeah no no no. so so uh, i'm thinking you uh hijack a spheres from the iss and you program it to uh, maybe probably be a beater because it's pretty easy to to spot people mm. and fly towards them yeah sure or uh, not a beater what are the what are the uh the balls that the beaters hit away they're called um I only remember the golden snitch right now. Yeah, yeah, the snitch. I'm completely lost. <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna get emails about this. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is serious stuff. Oh dear. All right. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Elvis, for taking the time to talk to us. This was a really fascinating conversation. Oh good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. Okay, this week in spaceflight history now. So I guess you're, you're going to have to remind us, what was that clue before we go any further? Yeah, yeah. So the clue was running out of juice. Good clue. And I knew ahead of time what that was in reference to. So I guess it didn't really, I didn't have to rack my brains over this one. But uh, we have some winners. And I guess that's not surprising because it, it was from a fairly recent event. And I think the running out of juice is a pretty good clue, which I believe it was actually Dennis. I think it was Dennis who came up with that. Yeah. Because in my head, uh, or I remember that we made a joke about running out of juiced or running out of just Juice. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. that's uh, that's a Dennis clue. Thank you very much, Dennis. So we have four winners: Jason Friesen, Hartvik Line, uh, Moritz Lenz, and Cy Kyle Hartvik is a really familiar name. I believe that they've guessed a number of times. I think this is the first time that we've had the name actually on the show. So, congrats if that's the case. Um, and you know the others are are boring, multiple times successful guessers. <laughs> I say boring, but you know, you you guys are awesome and, and we uh, love having you guessing. So this week in spaceflight history is the 10th of January, 2015. It was the first Falcon 9 drone ship landing attempt and attempt is the correct word. So let's talk about Dragon first. Let's remember that this was a successful Dragon mission. Uh, this was CRS-5. Um, and, uh, I forgot that CRS-5 was actually delayed from their first launch window or their first launch attempt, uh, due to TVC drift in the second stage. That's the thrust vector control. I don't remember exactly what the drift was due to. I don't know if they actually told us, but they, uh, they detected drift. And so they, uh, stood down from their first launch attempt. Uh, but then their, their second launch attempt, uh, was, was successful. I think it took like two weeks to, to get back on the pad. So anyway, let's uh, let's talk about the landing. So uh, it was a landing attempt. It wasn't a successful landing, um, but it was the first time that they had tried to land on a drone ship instead of just ditching the first stage into the ocean. And let's take a second to remember uh, how monumental this was. The first stage of Falcon 9 is five stories tall, and the drone ship is just 90 by 50 meters. That's 300 by 160 feet. So really an, an incredible thing to catapult something up into orbit and then to land the first stage. It's really, really cool. And, and now it, it seems so common and everyday, but it, it truly was, was a big deal. So this was back before they had satellite uplink or, you know, a, an accompanying ship that stood nearby and, and was able to relay data. So the first stage was above the horizon for most of its flight, but right before it landed, it dropped underneath the horizon. So we didn't get any landing footage. We weren't even hoping for landing footage. We just got, you know, relayed a spoken word report about what happened uh, later on in the in the stream. But it carried out all of its landing burns successfully. And as it got close to the drone ship, the grid fins ran out of hydraulic fluid and uh, they tumbled over and exploded in in very spectacular fashion. So these grid fins, most of our listeners are going to be familiar with this, but I want to talk about it again because, you know, we, now we have 2020 hindsight. They have about four minutes of actuation because they use an, 
uh, an open loop hydraulic system. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're hydraulically actuated, not electromechanically actuated. And hydraulics are, are a really great application for this because they need a lot of torque. They need fast response. And uh, an open loop system is also pretty ideal because they have a very limited operational window. And recover, you know, doing a closed loop system where you can repressurize that hydraulic fluid and, and reuse it like, you know, like a digger or a loader or any of the terrestrial application, you know, 99% of the terrestrial applications for hydraulic uh, systems. I mean, including, you know, the brakes in your car are hydraulically actuated for most people. And that's a closed loop system where we're not spilling out brake fluid. <laughs> it's not like you have to refill it uh, regularly. But, but an open loop system makes a lot of sense if you're mass limited and you have a very limited operational window, which is exactly the, the situation that Falcon 9 is in. So when this happened, there was a lot of discussion about um, whether it was an open or closed loop system. And then I'm pretty sure Elon tweeted uh, confirming that it was an open loop system. They may dump it overboard. I'm not sure if that's the case. I mean, we're not talking about a lot of hydraulic fluid, so they could capture it. Um, which would definitely make it easier to do recovery operations because hydraulic fluid uh, is usually uh, fairly toxic. Um, and this, you know, if they were dumping it overboard, they'd be spraying it uh, over a fairly large area as they're, you know, coming in for landing. I, I don't think we've ever seen it being jettisoned. That's not necessarily a good indicator, but I, I'm, I, I think it's a, a reasonable guess that, that they're capturing it, even though it's, you know, open loop. Uh, that doesn't preclude mm -hmm. having some sort of capture system. So I had kind of forgotten about this because I don't mm -hmm. think we ever got a clear answer, but I assume that from the information you have here that it has been confirmed that it is like hydraulic fluid and not fuel because there was speculation that they were actually like using the fuel itself as a fluid to pressurize yeah. it. And, and we talked about that a lot uh, back in mm -hmm. 2015, but it, I don't think that there's been any, been any real confirmation from SpaceX, but um, looking at the big picture, I, I think it's pretty unreasonable to expect them to use RP-1 as a hydraulic fluid. Uh, they likely use RP-1 as a hydraulic fluid for the engines, which makes sense because they're already pumping uh, RP-1 down to the engines. But to use RP-1 to actuate the grid fins poses a lot of problems and not a lot of good solutions. So one of the big problems is that to pump the RP-1 back down to the RP-1 tank, right? Because that, that would be the point, is that you get to reuse it and have a little bit of extra burn time. To do that, you got to pump it through the LOX tank, which isn't great because LOX temperatures will freeze RP-1. And actually reusing the RP-1 or, or, or actually getting it into the tank is another problem because um, that tank is pressurized. And so you have to do all this juggling to make sure that you can catch it at a low temp at a low pressure and then pipe it into a relatively high pressure environment. It's not, you know, super high pressure, but it is pressurized. And then on top of it, what's the gain? Um, we're talking about, you know, on the order of 10 gallons of fluid, um, given their operational time, given some reasonable guesses about the size of the hydraulic chambers, we're talking about 10 gallons of, of fuel. Is that worth it? That certainly would not be worth it. But actually, I you know, I, I never knew or gave too much thought as to how much fluid we're talking about. But I always assumed that it would be more than that. Like 10 yeah. gallons is really not much. I mean, to power those giant grid fins, that's all it takes. Yeah. You know, I, I, and, cool. you know th this, is a, this is a rough guess. So maybe it's 20 gallons. Maybe it's 30 gallons. And, and it's definitely greater now because they were 10% uh, short on their margins. So, you know, it seems reasonable. They said, okay, we think that we're going to need, um, you know, X amount of act actuation. So let's overbuild that margin by 50%. And then it turned out to be 110% they ended up using, or I guess 210%, which, you know, they're, they're going to, this is a, a low priority thing. So they're going to try to cut these margins as short as they can. They had never, you know, really done this kind of operation before. So it's reasonable they would not estimate it properly. Um, but yeah, <laughs> they estimated it short by, by 10%. So they um, dumped in an additional 50% uh, reserve. And uh, they haven't had a problem with it since. When I was doing some research, though, I'm wondering if that's really the root problem that caused this failure. Given that grid fins aren't very important at low speed, and that's when they would have run out, right, at the, at the lowest speed. And second, that even after they 
added more reserve, they still had a number of failures. So we, we kind of focus on the hydraulic fluid running out, but I don't think that that was the main issue here. Does that seem reasonable? You know, it does, but since it was like SpaceX that said that that was the issue, I'm kind of surprised because, I mean, they, they would... But that's the thing is they never said that it was the issue. They just said that it was an issue that they encountered. They never said this hmm. was the cause. Okay. okay. Well, then in that case, that's totally possible that that's not the issue. I mean, it certainly, as far as the aerodynamics go, yeah, they serve no purpose, but it might help to balance the rocket as it's coming down, perhaps, you know, like you're trying yeah. to, you know, change the center of mass as you come down. But I mean, yeah. that you would think, I, I guess, yeah, you would think that that would be something that would be taken care of by the engines as far as, you know, the thrust factoring goes, like that's yeah. what actually does the work. Well, that, I mean, that's the thing is even if you switch into a new mode where you use the rotation as some sort of, of uh, reaction control, uh, e even if they do that, which I don't think that we see any evidence of them doing that with the with the video that we've now gotten, even if that's the case, that effect is drastically overwhelmed by the thrust vector control and the cold gas thrusters. So I I don't. Oh yeah, I we can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, can't forget the cold gas thrusters too. Yeah. Right. So I I I, I think that this was uh, totally. I I don't think it's unfair to say that it was totally unrelated to the failure. Uh, but you know, who knows? We're we're just yeah. a bunch of schmucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was also another problem. Like I guess it was like the next or some point within the next couple of flights, they had they did have a problem with the grid fins that was due to I think like a sticky valve or something. Like they couldn't mm -hmm. actually get it to actuate correctly. I think, mm -hmm. and then it kind of started to rotate. Um, but my memory's a little bit foggy on all. Of yeah. That. that that sounds that sounds familiar, but I don't remember the details either. Yeah. But there there you go. That's this week in space flight history. All right. Then what is the clue for next week? All right, so the clue for next week is in 1977, Black Side Down is the clue. Black Side okay. Down. So I don't know if that's like a Black Hawk Down reference or maybe just an actual Black Side Down, like maybe a heat shield or something. <laughs> Uh, or maybe a pun that involves both. Yeah, I have no idea. So next week in 1977, Blackside Down. All right. Well, if anyone knows what that is about, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. All right. Upcoming spaceflight events. We just got uh, one launch, but a couple other things after that. So the one launch we have is a Long March 3B, and that is launching TJSW5, which is a secretive payload. But um, we are told by same on the chat that it is a secret geostationary payload, and that no two are alike. So I don't know what that means, but I guess they're designed to do different things. That doesn't sound like anything for Earth observation. Um, more like yeah, some kind military of communication. communications. Yeah. yeah. So most likely that. So that's launching on the 7th with a launch window of 1511 UTC through 1608 UTC. So about an hour. And that's launching from the Xichang Launch Center in China. So there you go. That's your one launch. All right. And then on... NASA TV, we have two events. Uh, so first is on Friday the 10th at um, 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. This is the NASA Astronaut Candidate Class Graduation Ceremony. That should be pretty cool. And then on Wednesday, January 15th, so that's just after our next show, um, at 5.30 a.m. is going to be U.S. Spacewalk 62, um, which uh, I believe is the, the third or fourth Fourth, I don't remember if I missed one over the break. Third or fourth spacewalk uh, to replace the uh, the P6 batteries. So that that'll be pretty cool. Coverage begins at 5:30 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, and then the spacewalk is scheduled to actually begin at 6:50 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, yeah, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, well, let's uh, do over the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 Nut Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes, and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's all, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.